0: you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number one. Matthew's Gospel, chapter number one. We talked a bit last week about the Christmas message and what that means. We we might ask in a very straightforward way, what is the message of Christmas? There's a lot of opportunity to really miss the mark there. There's a lot of opportunity to have... The message of Christmas overwhelmed by competing cultural celebrations which have attached themselves to the Christmas season. There's a lot of opportunity for us to miss the mark here, so let's get this down big and bold. What is the Christmas message? The Christmas message is, in essence, and as simply as I know how to state it, Jesus came to save sinners from the wrath of God that is to come. And the appropriate response to that Christmas message is that we would repent or turn away from all our sins in favor of Jesus who came to die on our behalf to atone for our sin, that we might have a relationship with him, that we might know the promise of heaven. That is, in its very essence, the Christmas message. We might ask, from a little different perspective, a reasonable question like this. Why is it that we celebrate Christmas in the first place? We celebrate Christmas to commemorate, to memorialize, to remember that moment in time in human history when God, when God, who made us and the earth as we know it, when God stepped out of heaven clothed himself in flesh and dwelt among mankind that he might fulfill every obligation of the law that all of the promises of God might be yes and amen in him that through his death his sacrifice his resurrection we might have eternal life when we celebrate Christmas We're celebrating a very real moment in time in human history when God broke through to intervene in human history for the salvation of his people. That's why we celebrate. And that's the message of Christmas. A historical moment described for us and a message conveyed beautifully in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse number 18. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor. For the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, this is what God's Word says The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, And they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel commanded him. He married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. We began reading in verse number 18 and the reality is that verses 1 through 17 are not the kind of verses that you typically find yourself enamored with in your private Bible reading times but I want us to begin there and talk through a bit of what's being described in those verses. Usually when you come to Matthew chapter 1 you will glance over these first 17 or so verses or you will read them fast enough to get through them quickly without having to acknowledge your frustrations with all of the names and the slow movement of pace, but uh, slow enough that you don't have a guilty conscience about acknowledging somehow that you have read them and you read the Bible through in a year program, right? That's typically the way we move through those kinds of passages. But I want you to know that there's some significance in those 17 verses. Matthew shows his hand in verse number 1. Verse 1 says, The historical record of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, son of Abraham, or the genealogy of Jesus. What Matthew's doing for us is he's tracing the human ancestral lineage, the, the family line of Jesus in verses 1 through 17. But already he's indicated that this is more than just a man, right? He says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's a title, It's a title that points back to the promises of the Old Testament. And in fact, the genealogy in verses 2 through 16 comes from the Old Testament. There's a history of the people of God that's told in verses 2 through 17, a history lifted from the Old Testament and a history that reminds us that Jesus isn't just born on a whim from God, that Jesus is born according to the The divine purpose and plan of God made from the very foundations of the world. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament, the one Israel had been looking for for so long. Jesus is it. He is him. What they had anticipated had now been fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Verses 2 through 6 focus on Jesus' lineage from the time of Abraham to David and remind us of the promise that God made to Abraham long ago, way back as far as Genesis chapter 12. God said, Abraham, through your descendants, I'm going to bless the nations. Already, there's a focus on the part of God, in the mind of God, in the heart of God. There's a missional agenda to see to it that the message of the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. Through you, Abraham, and your descendants, the nations will be blessed. And by the way, we are the nations. We are, by faith in Jesus, the recipient of God's promise to Abraham. Jesus is the hinge point, the promised fulfillment. In verses 7 through 11, Matthew focuses on Jesus' ancestral lineage or his family from the time of David down to the time that Israel was carried away into Babylon. This too is reflected in the Old Testament. And what's being indicated here in this way that may seem a little distant or subtle to us, but would have been crystal clear for the first century reading, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of God through David. You may remember, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that God promises to Samuel in Second Samuel chapter 7, that someone in your line, a king according to the lineage of David, will rule forever on the throne of Israel. The eternal kingship of the house of David is the promise of good fortune for the people of Israel. God's continued favor with the nation. What Matthew's indicating here is that Jesus is that Davidic king we'd all been waiting for. Not not only is he the hope of the nations in Abraham. He's the promised king. A king that puts the interest of his people even before that of his own. Now, verses 12 through 16, these are probably the lesser-known names in the list, and in part, they're lesser-known because they're unparalleled in the Old Testament. These names represent the links that exist in the family of Jesus from the present moment for Matthew to the time of the Old Testament, many of which are not listed or mentioned in the Old Testament. A lot of people are really unfamiliar with how the Old Testament closes. If that's you, just follow for a moment. I'll walk you through. At the end of the Old Testament period, Israel is carried away captive. In other words, they continue to rebel against God, and God removes them from the promised land. They're carried away into Babylon. They're carried captive as exiles, cast out of their land. But after a period of 70 years, they're able to finally return to that land. The Bible tells of the glory of God leaving the city of Jerusalem and leaving the temple and how the temple is completely destroyed. That place where the presence of God would abide in the midst of his people had been destroyed and God's glory left even as the people of God were carried away. Even when Israel was allowed to come back into the promised land, beginning the reconstruction of Jerusalem and even rebuilding the temple, there was something that continued to be amiss. In fact, there's an older generation that's present at the dedication of that new temple, and the Bible says that they wept aloud because they remembered the glory of the old temple, how it was when God was there, when things were right as they should have been. Although Israel returns physically to the promised land, there's something that's always a bit amiss. And until Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, comes to Jerusalem and in fact comes to the temple, the glory of God is yet to manifest itself there again. Something's always off. And so in Matthew's reference to this genealogical link between the exile and the birth of Jesus... There's at least indicators that what Matthew is saying is that what you've been waiting for, the return of God's glory in the midst of his people, has now come to pass in the birth of Jesus Christ. Verse 18 speaks specifically to the details of his birth. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way, which is parallel language to the language used in verse number one. Here's what I'd suggest to you. That you have a human ancestry in verses 1 through 17, but the divine ancestry in verse number 18. Yes, Mary and Joseph are descendants of David, descendants of Abraham with connections to the pre-exile Israel. But more than anything else, understand that there is divine blood flowing in the veins of this Christ child soon to be born. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph. It was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Notice here that they are merely engaged. But that engagement in the first century was a legally binding arrangement. It did not carry the full force of marriage, but it wasn't far off. So it's appropriate that Joseph, even during the engagement, would have been referred to as her husband, and Mary would have been referred to as Joseph's wife, even during this period of engagement, because of the legally binding nature of the engagement itself. During the engagement, it would have been inappropriate for Mary and Joseph to be together in an intimate way, and so it's quite astonishing that here in her virgin state, she is found to be With child. Now, Mary knows in verse 18 what Joseph is soon to find out that conceived in her is a child of the Holy Spirit. She is said to be in verse 18, pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, inevitably, when talking about this passage, people tend to say, Pastor Wade, how did that happen? I will just tell you all at once. I don't know how that happened. I just know by faith. That it did, so perhaps I have saved myself the embarrassment of seeking to answer that question post service today. In verse 19, the Bible says that her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. You may be thinking divorce is strong language, they are only engaged, but remember again, there is legally binding force to the engagement in this cultural setting. Now, at this point, Joseph assumes what most might have assumed, that Mary has done something immoral or inappropriate. His perception is that whatever has unfolded here is deserving of their separation. And in the law of Moses, the maximum penalty for what He would have assumed to have been adultery was her death by stoning. But given his compassion, his mercy, his righteousness, he seeks for something far less serious. In fact, the divorce he wishes to be performed in something of a secret fashion so as not to bring great disgrace or shame on Mary or her family. But in verses 20 and 21, Joseph comes to the realization with a little angelic assistance of what Mary already knows and understands. Verse 20 says, but after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. He's reminded here, note, son of David. He's reminded of his place in Israel's history, of the likelihood of his being a part of God's plan for the salvation of his people, and then encouraged that he need not be afraid. It really is a rather brave thing, a rather rather noble thing that Joseph endeavors to do with his life. There are those biblical figures that sort of stand out and big and bold, Moses and Paul, but then there are these lesser figures who, for their nobility, for their faithfulness, do something that they really don't have an obligation to do and find themselves a critical part of God's plan for salvation. Joseph is, for all intents and purposes, a stepfather. And yet he appears to love Jesus dearly and to treat him well and provide for his needs. It, it, it really is a noble thing that Joseph does sets out to do not an easy thing but a noble thing take mary as your wife because what's been conceived in her is by the holy spirit i I want you to understand i want you to get this that when we talk about the birth of jesus christ in bethlehem we're not talking about the beginning of christ in bethlehem we're talking about a moment in time in human history When God would step out of heaven and onto earth, clothing himself in flesh. The theological term here is incarnation. It's when he is incarnate, when he clothes himself in flesh. Birth tends to indicate beginning, but this is not the beginning of Jesus. This is him clothing himself in flesh and coming to dwell among us. When you think about the birth of Christ in those terms, it is astonishing. Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. He would set aside the glories of heaven, clothing himself in flesh, subjecting himself to all of the vulnerability and indignities of life in the here and now in order that we might have the forgiveness of our sin. Think of that for a moment. The Apostle Paul would say in Colossians chapter 1 that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in Jesus. Which is to say that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in the virgin womb of Mary, the mother of Jesus. It is a remarkable thing to think about. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. So what Mary knows in verses 18 and 19, Joseph has affirmed for him, by a dream in verses 20 and 21. Not only is he informed that this child is born of a miracle conceived uh, of the Holy Spirit, he's given some indication as to what the future of this child holds in verse 21. Here the Bible says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Rather than the traditional approach to naming a son after someone in your lineage or with a name that would speak to some significant event or episode in your lineage, he was to be named Jesus, which means that God saves. He's given a name that's reflective of his mission here on earth. He's given the name specifically here because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, which is to say that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God sets forth his law. He says, these are the requirements. And for all of human history, every man, woman, and boy, and girl has come short of that standard. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Jesus came to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. What you and I have not done, what you and I cannot do, Jesus came to do in absolute perfection. Think of the grace in that. What God required of us, he has performed for us in sending his son to do in our place what we could not do ourselves. On top of that, at the end of Jesus' life, in spite of his perfection, he would die on the cross. And the Bible explains why it is that he would die there at the cross. Not for sins he'd committed, not for crimes that he had done, not for his own misdeeds, but for ours. Jesus, who never knew sin, died in our place that we might justifiably be forgiven of our sin. More than that, not only does Jesus die for our sin, in his death, he accredits to us his own righteousness. There is this great exchange that happens. Our sin is carried away and his goodness is given to us. The one who knew no sin becomes sin for us that we, by faith in him, might become the righteousness of God. And in doing so, Jesus satisfies the wrath of the Father against our sin. We talk in the language of being saved. And what we're being saved from is the wrath of God against our sin. What we're being saved from is eternal hell. What we're being saved from are the full consequences of the dreadful decisions we continually make. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. That's precisely what's foretold In our passage, she'll give birth to a son, and you're to name him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. Now, the climax of these verses, and in fact, the climax of all of Matthew chapter 1, is verses 22 and following. Listen to what the Bible says here. Matthew is narrating here, and he says, By the way, I want you to see the connection that exists between this and what God promised he'd do in times past. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God is with us. Or they will call him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. He cites a verse from Isaiah chapter 7. In fact, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse number 14. And here's the significance of Isaiah 7. It belongs to a section in the Old Testament. In fact, a section within the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 7 through 12, that some refer to as the book of Emmanuel. There in, in the book of Emmanuel, in Isaiah 7 through 12, God reveals something about the Messiah, Christ, who is to come That until that moment had only been suggested. For instance, as far back as Genesis 3, just after the fall in the garden, God seemed to be suggesting that something would happen in the future that would redeem his people. That would reverse the curse of Adam and Eve. That would save us from our sin. He said the seed will bruise his heel, but he'll crush the head of the serpent. Further in the Old Testament, there is the promise that a king is coming who puts the interest of his people even before his own. There's the beginnings of this expectation that a king will come to rule and reign with our interest in view. The books of Judges and Ruth instruct us that not only do we desperately need a king, that more specifically we need a king according to the tribe of Judah. The books of of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles train our expectations to know that we desperately need a king according to the line of David according to the tribe of Judah a king that separates himself from rampant immorality or even momentary hopes at times expectations that this king might be the one he might be the one There's even a growing expectation that a king will come with a sort of priestly function who will stand between us and God, who will mediate on our behalf, who will represent God to us, and who will represent our interests before God. And again and again and again, leader after leader after leader, fails to meet the hopeful expectations of the nation of Israel. And then comes Isaiah 7. As Israel is circling the drain and preparing for her exile, preparing to be carried away, Isaiah drops what amounts to a theological bomb on the brains of the people of Israel. And what he says to them is not only are you going to get a king, not only are you going to get a priest king, you're going to get God in the flesh. For the first time in the history of the Old Testament, Isaiah 7 through 12 says, This is not just a good man, this is the God man who is coming. It is there he's referred to as the Prince of Peace, our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, more than a king. That's precisely what is packaged in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, not just a good man, not just a king they had been waiting for, not just a momentary mediator between God and the people of God, but the God-man, the king of all kings, and the only mediator between God and man. Jesus is God with us. Let's camp there for just a moment. This is the high water mark of Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, that Jesus is God with us. God come down, the transcendent God of heaven, putting his feet on this earth's soul, that he might walk in perfection and die in our place, raised again the third day, that we might have eternal life. Jesus is God with us. But this is more than just this period of His earthly ministry. This is to say more than just Jesus is God with us for 30 or so years of his earthly life and ministry. Jesus prepares for the cross, he prays for the church, and he prays for the world, and he commits to his disciples the promise of a helper that comes after him, the continued abiding presence of God's Holy Spirit in us, and with us, and among us. Jesus is not just God with us at some time past in in history. Jesus is the guarantee of God with us eternally. By his abiding spiritual presence now, but physically in a kingdom that is to come. Jesus is the yes and amen to God with us. The passage speaks of God's work before us. Way back in the time of Abraham and even before the foundation of the world, we might say that Matthew 1 focuses a bit on God before us. Clearly, Matthew 1 speaks of God being for us in the sense that we're the beneficiary of his favor. He has looked upon us with love and with mercy and compassion. Matthew 1 focuses on God For us, But more than anything else, Matthew 1, the birth of Jesus Christ is about God with us. And listen, if that doesn't minister to the human heart, that God, by faith in Jesus, is with us, I don't know what can or will. God, by faith in Christ, is pleased to abide in the hearts of those who cherish him. I I, admittedly am not a Christmas person. And my immediate family tells me that this makes me a bad human being. But I am just not a Christmas person. For whatever reason, it has always felt for me as though this time of the year was just fraught with problems and and difficulties. All kinds of problems and difficulties. It, It seemed to have been the case that if something tragic could happen, if someone could be lost, it's always happened within this Christmas window of the year if you grow up in a in a situation where you don't have a whole lot even when there are efforts at covering such things from children, there's enough discernment in the hearts of the smallest children to take note of certain difficulties at providing certain things during certain times of the year. And then when you come up in a broken family situation, there's the constant question of how often I'm going to be ping-ponged from one residence or family to the other. This just has never been a time, the days are short and it's dark and dreary, you sort of get, I just do not like this time of the year. My favorite day in the Christmas season is the day after. And I start jerking things down and throwing things away. And I don't have to deal with that again for 364 days. That's my favorite part of Christmas. Part of that is born out of a frustration that we so much miss. Now, as a young person, I just didn't like it in general. But now, as a Christ follower, there's an added layer of frustration and that we have so much missed the spirit of the season. Nothing of God should cre- create this degree of anxiety and stress and frustration and even depression in the hearts of, of God's people. This ought to be a season of the year when we are reminded that God is with us. And no matter what memories this season might create or stir for you, no matter how deep the tragedy may affect you or cut you, no matter how great the struggle may be, listen, God is with us. God who in times past has intervened in human history. He broke through human history in order that his son might be born, that we might be delivered of our sins. The guarantee that even the minute details of our life, he is actively orchestrating such that they serve our good and the glory of his name. Listen, God is with us. If that doesn't help the heart, I don't know what can or does. That God is with us, that we exist under the absolute authority, under the sovereign hand, under the lordship of a God who has loved us so much that he would give his son over as a sacrifice for our sin. This is a level of love, a depth of grace that is beyond our comprehension. Brothers and sisters, hear me. God is is with his people. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. And by faith in the Son, the Father has promised that he is with us. Verses 24 and 25 read, When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he didn't know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Verses 18 through 25 are about Jesus' yes and amen to all the promises of God. In the language of chapter 1, we might say that by faith in Jesus, the presence of God with us is promised to people of every tribe and nation, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. We might note that by faith in Jesus, the Father's exaltation of Jesus has made him the King of all kings the fulfillment of God's promise to David. And even in that window of seldom well understood Hebrew history, we might say concerning the exile that the sacrifice of Jesus through his body and blood, Christ has become the only acceptable sacrifice, thus marking the true end of exile and the return of the full glory of God into the midst of his people. What we needed was Jesus. What God provided was his only begotten son. Jesus came to save sinners. The only acceptable, the only appropriate, the only biblical response to that message is to turn away from the things of this world and unto Christ for the grace and the mercy that can only be found in him. I've, I've found that just being honest about some stuff, especially during the holidays, like having a dysfunctional family and sort of being a little bit jacked up as a result of it and maybe not getting excited about Christmas like some people do. I, what I, here's what I, found, what I find. That there's a whole lot of people just like me out there. Some of you have had, you know, you've, you know everything's been nicely packaged and all sewn up neatly and, and beautifully. But I've I, I found... There's lots of people out there who are hurting deeply and, and lots of people out there who, who just find themselves frustrated year after year after year. The message of Christmas drowned out by the expectations the culture creates for them, expectations that they can never measure up to or meet. And here's what I'd invite you to do, to come to Jesus and find rest in him, comfort in the knowledge that by faith in him, God is for us, and God is with us, that God has loved us, and he will persevere with us. In a topsy-turvy, chaotic, sometimes crazy mixed-up world, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His mercies are new every morning. That's what we celebrate. At least that's what we ought to celebrate At Christmas, come to him, come to him, come to him. Jesus came bearing the gift of salvation, a free gift, but it's a one-day-only offer. Today is the day of salvation. Receive him and know that to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for the privilege of giving consideration to this incredible moment in human history, when indeed you broke through, clothed yourself in flesh, and dwelt among us. I pray, God, that you would be received gladly by the hearts of those gathered here this morning, that today might be the day of salvation for some pray, God, that you give eyes to see and hearts to understand and believe the gospel. That even in the next moments, as we have occasion to respond to the reading and the preaching of your word, that you would guide us as you'd have us to go. Refresh our hearts, Lord, encourage and stir the church with excitement at this promise that indeed you are with us. Help us to take our comfort in that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.